0: you would please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. It's found in your worship folder, or if you'd like to use the pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1005. As you're turning, would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are the living God who speaks. So we pray that you would enable us to hear your voice again today through your Word, by your Spirit. Please plant your word deeply in our hearts, Lord, that we would have a fresh taste of your glory and grace this morning, that we'd be strengthened in every way uh, by knowing your steadfast love for us. And so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in his name, amen. Well, throughout history, God has used many vivid ways to communicate with us, including symbols that speak to all of our senses. In Hebrews 9, we read about a tent from about 3,000 years ago called the tabernacle. It was a tent that Moses and the people of Israel constructed in the wilderness to be the central symbol and place of worship. And we read here also about the sacrifices that were necessary to enter that tent, And we find out that this tent is, in fact, telling the core story of the whole world. Now, this is a longer reading a bit today, but there is really kind of no way to break this apart. So, let's relish this rich portion of the Word of God together, Hebrews chapter nine. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not with not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Boy, there is so much here. (laughs) When the pastor says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, he was not kidding. (laughs) Now, what does all this mean? Let me start with an illustration. Have you ever been locked out of a place that you really wanted to go? This is the situation at the beginning of Roald Dahl's story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. This factory run by Mr. Willy Wonka is the most magnificent chocolate factory in the whole world. And imagine how this factory would have seemed from the perspective of children everywhere. A magical playground of, of bright colors where literally everything is an edible sweet of one kind or another and the supplies never run out. What greater place in the world could there be than this? This is the fullness of glory where where there is a, a world of pure delight in endless supply. And yet, the gates are locked. We feel the longing and the loss of that image because this fantasy story touches something deep and true about our own condition. We all know that the world that we long to live in is broken. Uh, This world is broken. It is not the way it is supposed to be. We are all locked out of the world that we long to know, and we are powerfully attracted, therefore, to any place or person that promises us to give us a taste of the glory that we long to know. So when Willy Wonka promised a tour to five children who found the golden tickets inside his candy bars, it sets off a worldwide frenzy because everyone wants in. This is the story of the world, according to Hebrews 9, in many ways. God's tent, the tabernacle, was the most magnificent place in the world because it was the place where the Creator of heaven and earth revealed Himself more fully and more clearly than anywhere else in creation. And while no tent can surely contain the Creator of all things, it was there to show visibly that God dwelled among His people. And the people of Israel had seen with their own eyes the visible form of the presence and glory of God descend from Mount Sinai into the tent itself, into its most inner room, the most holy place. The glory of God refers to the display of everything about God that makes Him supremely great and good. His infinite power and wisdom and beauty and love and joy and peace. The world that we want is a world where that kind of glory fills everything. A world in which we flourish because we enjoy God's greatness and goodness in all of life. And that glory is what the most holy place in that tent says is coming into our broken world. And yet the people were locked out. This glory was hidden from their view behind a veil in a room no one could enter except the high priest just once a year. How does he get to that glory? How do we get to God's glory? We need more than a golden ticket in a candy bar. We need redemption, a redemption that can come only through sacrifice. The way to draw near to God and enter the abundant life that is found by enjoying his glory is the greater redemption that comes by the sacrifice of Jesus for us. I want to answer three questions about that why do we need redemption by sacrifice? And second, why does Jesus' sacrifice actually redeem us? And third, so what? First, why do we need redemption by sacrifice to draw near to God and to enter His glory? Human beings are excluded from entering the place of God's glory, not by any arbitrary rule, but rather because we have disqualified ourselves. The corruption of sin does not make sinful human beings naturally stand at the gate of heaven just longing to be with God and to delight in knowing and following him. Now, we still have, all of us, that longing deep inside of us, but it comes out in very twisted and deceptive ways. Imagine if, like in the story, we had spent our lives insulting Willy Wonka, believing and telling lies about him, ignoring his candy bars and preferring inferior imitations, and wrecking his factory and his work. We would be the sort of people who don't even want to go in the factory at all. The problem of sin is not that we want God and his glory, but are locked out because God just arbitrarily pushes us out. The problem is in us. Sinful human beings don't naturally want God and his glory as we should. And so we stay away, we ignore, we even insult God's invitations to come to him. This is the condition that humanity brought upon ourselves. In Genesis 1 to 3, we see that after being created, human beings turned away from God and wrecked themselves and wrecked each other and wrecked God's world. And the natural result and the just penalty of turning away from the source of all life and all goodness is misery and death. There can be no returning to God without reckoning with justice for what we have done in sinning against him. And in the scales of God's perfect justice, we are found guilty. We have condemned ourselves to death. Now the Bible could have ended right there. Could have been three chapters long. God created, humanity sinned, the end. But praise be to God that he did not abandon us by insisting only on justice. God has provided a way to redeem what was unredeemable, or what looks unredeemable. And God uses sacrifice as a way of drawing his people near and showing his solution for sin and death. In the nation of Israel, God's covenant with his people was established at Mount Sinai with blood. You can look at verses 18 to 21 here. The pastor summarizes the way that Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of sacrifices from the altar that was at the foot of the mountain. When the tabernacle was built, the people could draw near to God and worship outside the tabernacle, but only by offering sacrifices of blood on the altar, which stood at the entrance to God's house. You can see this also in verse 6, where the high priest could enter the most holy place, but only with blood. These were all symbolic ways of showing God's solution to our condition. As Leviticus chapter 17 says, the life is in the blood. And so blood is a symbol of the life that is offered. The way that God redeems us from condemnation to eternal misery and death is by paying the just penalty of death through a representative and a substitute that God provides so that we can be free from that penalty. This is why the pastor writes in verse 22 here, without the shedding of blood... That is, without death, there is no forgiveness of sins, a life for our life, a death for our death. This is the way of justice, and the reason why sacrifice is the way of redemption. Now, second, why is it that Jesus' sacrifice redeems us so that we can draw near to God and enter His glory? Well, in the ancient world of the Bible, everyone assumed that sacrifice was necessary, Sacrifice was a central feature of all human cultures prior to civilizations influenced by the Christian faith. And if sacrifice now seems foreign and strange in our culture, it's because we have forgotten what all humanity once knew. And ironically, our culture has forgotten it because the sacrifice of Jesus was so successful. Jesus' death literally rocked the world by bringing our need to offer sacrifices to an end. The pastor gives us three reasons here to explain why Jesus' sacrifice was greater than all other sacrifices and made all other sacrifices obsolete as a way of drawing near to God. The first one's in verse 12. It says, Jesus offered himself. He offered his own blood, his own life and death, and not the blood of mere animals. The pastor writes, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Human sin and human death are human problems that require a human solution. Animals cannot solve a human problem. Animals were symbols of people and symbols of what God was doing to and for people. But Jesus offers himself as sacrifice, a human life to represent us, to take our place as as, As our substitute in life and death. Thanks be to God that He has provided the human life that we need. The second reason is in verse 14. Jesus offered not just a human life, but a perfect human life. Through the eternal Spirit, He offered Himself without blemish to God. As we learned in Hebrews 4, Jesus is without sin, so He can be the solution because He's not part of the problem. In verse seven, we see that the Old Testament priests could not do this because they offered sacrifices for their own sins as well as for that of others. But Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and powerful because he is perfect, the substitute of a truly sinless life for ours. Thanks be to God that he provided the perfect human life that we need. And third, Jesus offers one sacrifice that defeats all sin forever. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly that he came. But verse 26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin because, verse 28, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Animal sacrifices had to be offered over and over. Now they were not, they were not empty signs God actually did grant forgiveness and spiritual life through these symbols as sacraments, but not because of those symbols. The repetition meant that they were not the ultimate redemption that we need. But Jesus' sacrifice has power like no other sacrifice because of who He is. As we learned in Hebrews 1, He is not merely human. He is God Himself having taken a human nature upon Himself, and so His sacrifice— has the capacity to absorb the full weight of all the consequence of all human sin and evil, and he has the power to endure it and conquer it. No mere human being could do that. In the 11th century, the scholar Anselm of Canterbury in England wrote a famous book titled in Latin, Cordeus Homo, which means, why did God become human? And this chapter gives us the answer. He had to be human in order to represent us as our substitute, but he also had to be God to have the power to be able to bear the weight of sin's curse and to defeat the sin and death that had conquered humanity. Thanks be to God that he's provided the divine life that we need. Now finally, so what? What does Jesus' redemption mean for us and why should we care so deeply? Well, the first so what is that God's redemption is just. God demands and accomplishes perfect justice. Many people who reject the idea of God who is a redeemer and judge nevertheless continue to believe that the universe is a moral place, that there is moral progress in the world, and that there is a right side to history. They agree with Martin Luther King when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice— But without a personal God who is justice itself and who can act as a judge to bring accountability and to make things right, there seems to be no rational basis to believe in such a thing. But Hebrews nine shows us that the God who made the world is so committed to justice that he willingly takes the full consequences of evil upon himself in order to open a way to make things right. God's justice is good news It means that there is a foundation in reality for us to hope and to know and to trust that justice will finally be done in this world. The happy ending that we long for in every story, including our own, is based in the true story of the world where God makes everything right that has gone horribly wrong. Thanks be to God for that hope for God's justice to prevail. But his justice is also a warning God's justice is perfect, so there is no escaping the justice of his judgment. Look at verse 27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Because God is our creator, he has the right to hold us accountable for the life that he gave to us. And because he is perfectly good and just, the only record that will escape a guilty verdict of condemnation to eternal judgment and death is a perfect life, and if we don't have a perfect record, then our only hope for redemption is to entrust ourselves completely to the one who does, and his name is Jesus. But thanks be to God for the second so what of this chapter. God's redemption is not only just, it is merciful. You don't have to fear God's judgment on your life. If you trust the redemption that he offers us freely in Jesus Christ, Look at verse 28. After, at that final judgment, Christ will appear to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And as he so often does, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. The good news is that God's mercy triumphs over judgment, and he delights to show mercy by redeeming broken, guilty people like me and like you. At the cost of his own death, Jesus has opened a way of mercy as a gift for you and for me, if only we will receive it as a gift with open hands of trust. The wonder of this good news is that God's redemption in Jesus' sacrifice combines both justice and mercy, and this shows us the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Other religions and philosophies offer either justice or mercy, but not both as a way of redemption. There are many people in our culture who reject God's redemption in Jesus, who believe that redemption is something that we do for ourselves. On many secular views, we save ourselves from evil by striving to be good people. But in the, end, the, the end result of that is always a denial of both justice and mercy. Since virtually no one claims to be morally perfect, every project of self-salvation denies justice by lowering the standard. And this inevitably downplays evil. It makes the horror and the damage and the evilness of evil less than it actually is. And it has no way to take away the guilt of what we've done in this world. A few months ago, I saw this illustrated in the new Christmas musical, Spirited, with uh, Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. In the movie, Spirits from the Afterlife, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, uh, aim to redeem one really bad human being every year by trying to produce the same change of heart that happened in Ebenezer Scrooge. So they select Clint, uh, a truly evil, selfish guy who is considered by everyone unredeemable. But you guessed it, at the end of the movie, Clint is redeemed when he does a truly self-sacrificial thing. But what really interested me was the song. Of course, it's a musical. Of course, there was a song. Um, The song song that explains what Clint does in the end is called Do a Little Good, and it attempts to explain Clint's redemption as a gospel of self-salvation. The song says, so can we do a little good, maybe give a little more, work a little harder than we did the day before? It only takes a little good and some doing what you can taking every chance to make the choice to be a better man. So do a little good. And whether it's Christmas Day or a random day in May, you're gonna wanna say that you tried the best you could. And a little is enough. A little is enough. But is it though? Good enough for what, is my question. In the story, Clint's little good is supposed to be enough to redeem Clint from all the evil he's done in the course of a whole life. Was it all just made okay because he did a little? How can a little moral effort be enough to redeem all the evil that has done, all the evil that's been done in the history of humanity than this broken world? That, that might make for a tidy, heartwarming end to a musical, but it is terribly bad and false philosophy that makes horrendous evil seem trivial. Hebrews 9 is much more realistic about what evil truly is and about the justice that's needed to overcome it, for it tells us that what is truly required for justice is not just a little good, but it requires nothing less than the death of the God-man who truly absorbs and experiences the full weight of human evil in all of history and God's just response to it. But trying to save ourselves by being good not only denies full justice, but it denies mercy because it turns redemption into something that we earn or achieve. This can leave us feeling overconfident if we ignore or hide our evil to convince ourselves that we are among the good people. Or it can leave us anxious because we never know how much goodness is actually enough to redeem us. Or it can leave us in despair when we truly face our evil evil and realize that we can't hide it and we can't undo it. I think the viciousness and the condemnation and the outrage that are so visible and frequent on social media come from this confidence and this anxiety when people are competing to prove how good they are by being on the right side of issues and on the right side of things. Even when their moral views may happen to be correct, it shows that a world of justice without mercy is actually harsh and ugly and not one we can live in. But in Jesus, in Jesus, there is true justice and true mercy perfectly combined. In Jesus, the just judge passes full sentence on our sinfulness and evil, and then he takes off his robes and steps down from the bench to enter the prison cell and to suffer death on our behalf so that we can be free and we can be forgiven. We can have full and complete justice and full and complete mercy, but only if we will trust him and entrust our lives to him by faith. Now the final so what of this passage is that God's redemption is powerful. His solution really works. He has done what is necessary to give us freedom, real freedom from the penalty and power of sin and death. You see it in verse 14. It is Jesus' sacrifice that can purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In John Bunyan's famous allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian enters the road of redemption to the celestial city in this way. He ran till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom, a grave. And just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and light and said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And he wept for joy at the peace of real forgiveness." Friends, that is the deep freedom and peace and joy that God wants us to know every day in the journey of this life toward the true celestial city. And this freedom is real. This comfort is real. Millions of Christians around the world and through time and many in this very room have had this experience again and again of having your burden fall away because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to carry that burden of your guilt and shame anymore, no matter what you've done. You don't have to live in fear of God's justice and judgment anymore. Christ has already borne that burden for you and he casts it into his own grave when we simply trust him and cast ourselves upon his mercy, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in this way, God's redemption offers a greater redemption than the gospel of self-salvation because it both faces and deals with evil in the strongest possible way and simultaneously kills all self-righteousness and arrogance because we realize that only the sacrifice of Jesus can redeem us. Hebrews reveals that the measure of our maturity, the measure of our maturity is our willingness to receive help from God and to keep on receiving it because we keep trying to pick our burden back up again over and over. So we have to keep laying it down and casting it upon the one who can take it from us conclusion of the TV series, Ted Lasso, the, the gruff Roy Kent, um, my wife suggested I shouldn't try to imitate his voice. Um, um, the gruff Roy Kent poses the question, can people change? And Higgins replies, the best we can do is to keep on asking for help and accepting it when you can. Those are wise words. Can people be redeemed? Can you and I be redeemed in spite of all our mess? and all our failure, and all our rebellion, and all our wasted opportunities? The answer is yes and amen in Jesus, but only if we keep asking for help, and keep on receiving it from the only one who can actually redeem us. Jesus, the God-man, sacrificed himself for us, and he now stands robed in God's glory in heaven, triumphant over sin and death, And he offers himself to you and to me to apply his grace to us at every moment until we see him face to face when he returns and makes all things right and new. May it be so in your life and in mine. May we trust him and enter into the joy of God's glory forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have done everything we needed. Everything we needed from you that we might be redeemed that you might make us into the the people of glory that you've created us to be, so that we can enter your glory and enjoy your glory forevermore. Lord, thank you for that grace, that undeserved favor and blessing and love for us. We thank you that that's who you are and that that you will redeem us. Please help us continue to keep on asking and looking and receiving and depending on you, for we know that you delight to give us that grace. Help us walk every day in that grace with you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.